Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, January 25th. We begin with a topic every resident seems to have an opinion on, the event center. Our Dave McIver took the topic to the street, this time out to hear why Calgarians think the project needs to happen. The massive merger of communications giants Rogers and Shaw is one step closer to becoming a reality. We speak with Ben Klass, PhD candidate from Carleton University, for his reaction to this week's announcement that the Competition Bureau will not block this mega deal. The city is seeking your input regarding RV parking in residential neighbourhoods. We'll find out why the city is interested in updating the current regulations and hear details on how you can voice your opinion. And finally, a real out-of-this-world topic, agriculture on Mars. We speak with Evan Fraser of the Errol Food Institute at the University of Guelph on the current plans in place to feed future planetary settlers and if we can adapt that technology involved to make farming more effective here on Earth. It's always a hot topic when it comes up and you'll often find people divided on whether it's necessary or not. On-air contributor Dave McIver talks with Calgarians on why we need an event centre. If there's one thing we love on QR Calgary, it's good old-fashioned respectful debate. And one hot issue in Calgary that always sparks debate is the event centre. Why do we need it? Why we don't need it? Today... We focus on the why we do need an event center in Calgary. Former Ward 6 Councillor and former Chair of the Event Center Assessment Committee, Jeff Davison, on the pros of the event center in downtown Calgary. I think it's always been a part of who we are as a city, and downtown recovery plays into a big role there. You know, very few jurisdictions throughout North America have the available downtown land mass that we do in the East Village. And so when you think about how does this work with a convention center, you know, how do we add hotels, how do we get people living uh, and working and, and playing downtown, the event center really became the catalyst to unlocking all of that as it's done in many centers around North America. You know, you take Columbus, you take Kansas City, you take Nashville, you look at where they have put together a plan that Calgary is after and found success in that. It's not just about the flames, right? It's about what is the overall programming we want to put into a district like that. You know, we can put a lot of money in, and the Saddle Dome is going to require hundreds of millions of dollars to bring it up to, to just sort of the next 15 years of operation. Um, but it doesn't fix the acoustics. And so when it comes to attracting some of the, the major talent out there when it comes to concerts, a new facility is really needed. And so when you step back and you think, we could put the same amount of money into an existing facility and well iconic, probably not the best design and probably not placed in the right area. Or we could look at building new, building better and and really building uh, something special for Calgarians for the next 50 to 60 years. It's the right thing for for Calgary, right? I mean, Calgary's always been a place that uh, has stepped forward and and really been the envy of many jurisdictions around the world. And it's it's time to to take our lead in that again. And I think the event centre will put Calgary back on the map. I do believe it will change the economic fabric of downtown. More people will live, work and play there. And that's ultimately the goal. Yesterday, I chatted with QR Calgary listeners Diane and Hans, and they spoke to why they think we need an event centre. Okay, so we need to have uh, the concert uh, that would financially support the businesses and city uh, coffers. So, for example, the revenue that came from Garth Brooks going to Edmonton was in the millions. And and our current stadium, our Saddle Dome uh, system, doesn't 
can't hold the sound system of these guys, these concerts, um, the sports events, there's a number of sports events that can be held there. My gravest concern, too, is that the millions of dollars taxpayer money is being spent to do a temporary Band-Aid effect to make sure the construction... Um, for the maintenance of the saddle dome. I love the saddle dome. I love the design and everything, but it's, what, 30-some years old now? So it is showing its age in the construction, and they're having to do uh, temporary fixes, and that's costing us money. Well, I, I think we need to uh, provide a suitable venue to attract more business to the city, you know, things like trade shows, concerts. With respect to hockey, like, the all-star game uh, maybe some international hockey tournaments i mean it's not fomo uh, i mean we really are missing out i mean we do need an event center it's it's been overdue it's been discussed for years and uh it just needs to be done i mean the saddle dome is a was an impressive facility when it was first built but it's the oldest uh, rink in the nhl and it just needs to be upgraded i mean it's just going to cost us nothing but money uh in the future to uh you know keep it uh keep it viable and uh why throw good money after bad the best part about debate is there are always two sides to every argument so tomorrow on qr calgary we'll focus on why we don't need an event center in downtown calgary of course if you want to participate text in to 403-974-8255 for qr calgary i'm dave mciver well, the appeal from the Competition Bureau has been shot down, so Rogers' takeover of Shaw Communications is back on track. What comes next and how will customers be impacted? With some insight, we're joined this morning by Ben Class, PhD candidate at Carleton University's School of Journalism and Communication. Good morning to you, Ben. Thanks for being with us. Good morning, Sue. Thanks for having me. What was the basis for the appeal from the Competition Bureau being thrown out yesterday? Uh, so the court uh, read the written... Uh, uh, arguments of the two parties and then only heard from the competition bureau uh, before it decided that it would throw the case out. Um, the competition bureau had challenged this merger uh, from the get-go. It had fought in front of the tribunal and it didn't like that decision it got approving the merger. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the federal court of appeal did, uh, you know, it, it had a very high bar to cross and the competition bureau was not able to cross it. So, I mean, I think They've issued a statement. Uh, they still believe that the merger is wrong, but uh, you know, at this point, uh, the the process is going to continue moving forward. Within that process, Ben, can you break it down? What is still up for debate when it comes to this acquisition? What are the other hurdles ahead? Uh, okay, so what's up for debate uh, is, you know, I think the idea that it's probably pretty obvious to most of your listeners that this merger is going to leave consumers, families, small businesses on the hook. Yet our regulators seem to be passing it through. Uh, so it has basically come up to the last gate. You know, the train's rolling into the station, uh, and that, uh, you know, Minister of Industry, uh, Fr- Philip Francois Philippe Champagne, is uh, the last sort of barrier to, to stand in the way of this merger. It is a very valuable deal, $26 billion. What comes next? What's the timeline? It looks like it'll likely go ahead then. Well, the, uh, there's been a parliamentary committee struck uh, this afternoon, I think, to uh, take one last look at this merger. I think it's widely expected that the minister is going to approve it, but that I find personally disappointing. Uh, you know, it's been unelected bureaucrats who've looked at this so far. The Competition Bureau, which is not exactly sort of a revolutionary agency, has opposed it the whole way, and these bureaucrats have, have approved this deal. You know, I think 
the minister is elected to protect Canadians and to uh, promote competition. I just don't see how approving this merger uh, is going to achieve either of those goals. Well, let's assume that the takeover goes through. We mentioned, you know, the fact that, you know, this will lessen choice for uh, uh, customers and and consumers out there. Can you give us some kind of a picture on on how you could see the impact on, on a regular average customer? Yes, I mean, I think it's pretty uh, it's pretty well clear that we can expect bills to go up, uh, especially for mobile services. You know, the competition tribunal, which examined thousands of pages of evidence and approved the merger, actually decided it would allow it to go forward even though the prices would go up. It just decided that the price wouldn't go up by a substantial amount in its view. It didn't define that what that threshold meant. But uh, they accepted that the prices would go up after this, and I think, you know, we've seen this happen before in Manitoba when Bell bought MTS and they, you know, Manitoban mobile market lost the edge that it had before. So I think you can brace yourself for a little less competition. Ben, there's a lot of opposition. You hear a lot of people complaining about it. Are there any positives to this deal? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I think the one positive thing you can come that can come out of this is that it really sort of shows how broken the system is. Uh, when you have these institutions and laws that are supposed to be promoting competition actually working together to allow concentration. Uh, you know, the government is currently consulting on uh, its approach to competition broadly, and there's been a challenge filed at the CRTC, both of which promised to offer at least the opportunity for some reform. So while it's, I think, largely too late for this merger, uh, you know, the, the government, again, is going to have a chance to get it right. And, you know, I just I want to add, you know, that I'm, I'm pretty skeptical at this point of, uh, of, you know, hoping for regulation to come and solve our problems. Uh, I've been studying in this area for 10 years and, you know, that sort of has been dangled in front of us for a long time. So really, I think this merger is a big disappointment because I'm in, I'm in favor of uh, sort of true market competition before government regulation, because I just don't think that the other one has worked in practice. Speaking with Ben Class, PhD candidate, Carleton University School of Journalism and Communication. Ben, you mentioned the years that you've been looking into this. So I'm wondering, besides this potential merger, as you're saying, it would have a less competition, perhaps higher prices for consumers. On the other side, when it comes to regulation, is there any chance that we could see some of the competitors, the many, many cell phone providers and Internet providers in the States, make their way onto our side of the border and increase that competition? Yeah, you know, I think the chances of that are pretty slim. Although the laws around foreign competition have been re- relaxed in recent years, uh, there really just hasn't uh, hasn't been any interest. You know, I think the president of T-Mobile, or the CEO of T-Mobile, is actually on the board of Shaw. And so if they had any interest, one would have to assume that they would have uh, sort of made an offer on Shaw already. Uh, you know, I think it, it would be nice to think that an AT&T or Verizon would come up here. But if they did so by, for instance, you know, buying one of the big companies, uh, we'd really just sort of be in the same situation as we are now, except for paying to an American company instead of a Canadian one. I think our best chance for more competition is for the ministers uh, to put his foot down and to say, you know what, guys, uh, you can't cooperate. You've got to compete. It's an ongoing conversation. Uh, it looks like we'll be talking about it uh, a little bit longer, but uh, it looks like it's probably going to go through, Ben. Uh, thanks for your, your uh, perspective on it this morning. Likewise, Sue. Have a good day. You too. Ben Class, PhD candidate, Carleton University School of Journalism and Communication. The whole thing, just it's a uh, it's $26 billion deal. I don't think anybody's putting a stop to a, a deal that is that big. Well, then you got to think, well, who benefits when it comes? I'm not saying, I am not in any way saying corruption, but who's benefit? Who does see this as a great option? In, in what I'm looking at is there are many different, both, both Sean Rogers have their hands in many different pies. Mm-hmm. But if you focus purely on the cell phone, 
part and the connectivity when it comes to wireless, right? We saw what happened the first week in July and the impact it had on Calgary when the servers went down with, they had some computer issues with Rogers rather, right? Great. Do you really on it? Do you think that the, the, these two companies coming together, that we'd have less chance of that happening? I, I know that when companies merge, they take the resources and they pool them together. Mm-hmm. If we have one giant and then, you know, TELUS does its thing and I get that. But if we have one giant, what are the odds that we could not see something tenfold of what we did see? Should we not be spreading it out when it comes to the tech companies? I, I'm just wondering in it higher prices. And the other thing is when these mergers happen, I always hear, oh, this is the plan ahead. They guarantee to keep rates frozen for four years. And yeah. that's and then people are fine with it. What about I'm planning on living past four years from yeah. now, Sue. What about <laughs> no, after that? I know. Is the, is the sky the limit what they can charge? You know, I don't we, know. We see what happens in the United States and we wish that we could get something like that here where the rates are so low because there's so much competition. And what are we doing here? We're just whittling down the competition and making even less so and complaining more about the costs that we pay for our cell phones and, and the bills. I mean, and what are we, little guy, what are we going to do? Nothing. Because <laughs> that $26 billion deal is rolling and it's going to be tough to stop. Why is the city looking to update the RV parking regulations? Do you even know what they are? Joining us to talk about it is Alika Cooley, business strategist with the city's Community Strategies. Good morning to you, Alika. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. Can can you explain a little bit, you know, sort of the basic RV bylaws in Calgary right now for people who own an RV and want to park them near and, you know, in front of their home for the most part? Absolutely. So right now, uh, RVs are allowed to be parked up to 36 hours on a hard surface driveway or on a parking stall. Uh, They can be parked on the side or the rear of the property without any time limit. Um, As far as the street, the city streets and alleys are concerned, uh, detached trailers, campers or RVs cannot be parked on city streets or alleys. Uh, but RVs such as motor homes, they can be parked on a street immediately adjacent to the owner's residence for up to 36 hours. Though I have to say that uh, they have to be, after the 36-hour time limit is over, they have to be off-street location for at least 48 hours before it can return back to the street. So, Alika, I can't take my motor home and back it up 10 feet and say, there, I've moved it? <laughs> Uh, yes, you can do that. And honestly, it has to, when we're talking about the street parking, though, it has to, uh, sorry, city street parking, yeah. it has to be adjacent to the owner's residence for a maximum of 36 okay, hours. Okay, so I, I can't back it up for 10 feet and say, there, I'm good. It has to be, like, physically removed from that section until I bring it back. Exactly. Okay. After you have reached your 36-hour limit, it has to be removed for 48 hours. Okay, so the city's looking at sort of revisiting these bylaws. Why? Are you getting complaints from RV owners who want to be able to leave their RVs wherever the heck they want? What's the the basis of looking back into this? So one of the reasons is, like, as as we understand, RV ownership has evolved locally within Calgary. 
And what we are doing is we are really trying to get Calgarians' feedback to understand or, in fact, to update our definition of RVs because they are dated. And we really want to understand from Calgarians how long would they like the parking to be on the front driveway of a residential property, what are some of their benefits, what are some of their concerns. So that's really the kind of feedback and information we are trying to get from Calgarians. Okay, so yeah, I want some clarification here because I think that's that's where some of the snags might come in as far as understanding. The, the city street, that's one thing. But if I have a driveway up to my house, like kind of beside my house, and I can pull it up so it's not sitting in the driveway, but it's parked beside the house to a certain extent, like in front of a garage, that is okay? Or how does that work? So I think there are two things over here. When we're talking about the driveway, we're talking about the paved driveway, which is in front of the house, right? So you can park there at for up to 36 hours right now. And if I'm understanding your question correctly, the other aspect is the street parking, which is not on the driveway. How I look at it is the important thing for us to keep in mind is the safety. If we are, if we are parked in a place where we are completely blocking the pedestrians uh, or even for the, the drivers to pass by, we are, we are blocking their sight line, and that is a concern. And those are some of the things we are trying to look at and we are trying to mitigate. Alika, have you heard from citizens as of yet that, you know, either are for or against changing these these rules within the bylaw? Because I would think there are a lot of people, first, who don't have an RV or any kind of trailer and don't really want every city driveway littered with one of those. Um, but, you know, then there's the RV people who probably would like to not have to pay for months of storage during the summertime and beyond. So are you hearing from people in particular? Absolutely. So in terms of the engagement is concerned, yes, we've already had a lot of feedback from Calgarians. And of course, we get both perspective as to why they would want, uh, they wouldn't want a long-term parking on the driveway or why they would want. I think if you look at the survey, the important thing is we are really asking them as to why. We want a reason behind what uh, they're proposing. So yes, we've heard a lot of feedback and we did hear concerns even, and that this is one of the reasons we wanted to engage Calgarians is because as I mentioned, the needs of Calgarians in terms of RV is evolving. And we really wanted to understand how would they want things to be uh, before we make any amendments because Calgarians' perspective is important as we move forward with this. All right, let's talk about what people can do because it is a call to action and wanting to hear from residents, how, how can people voice their opinions on this? Certainly. So what, what, uh, what we are requesting everyone to do is uh, go to calgary.ca slash RV parking and provide their information. When you go on this page, we provide you information about the project. We also provide you some background information. Uh, there are some frequently asked questions, which will give more perspective. And then, of course, the last section at the end is for them to provide their input. Uh, we have five questions, and we're really looking forward to hearing on Calgarians' input on, this, on these questions. Alika, I'm just wondering if, if you might be able to answer this. Uh, what is the current protocols if I have an issue with a, an uh, RV that's maybe been parked for a week in front of a house? H- how do I deal with that? And uh, if I'm an owner and I'm parked incorrectly, do, does it start with a warning or am I fined immediately? So absolutely, uh, 
in as far as enforcement is concerned, we always like to first provide education. So if you are dealing with a concern, um, I, I suggest that you call 311 and let it known to the 311 agent what your concern is. Our officers do get these concerns and we look into it. And then we are going to talk to the owner of the RV or where the RV is parked. But like I said, First, we always like to provide education before we get into ticketing or any any other aspects of enforcement. Bit of a contentious topic, I'm sure. We'll get some texts coming in. Thank you for your time, Alika. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Alika, good- you too. Alika Cooley, business strategist with the city's community strategies. And again, that website, you can have your say pro or against, you know, the RV changing of the bylaw and how it allows and how long it allows you to have your trailer, RV, whatever it is on your house mm-hmm. uh, or on your driver in front of your house. Calgary.ca slash RV parking. Could we feed a city on planet Mars? And how could these food systems be potentially used to transform the food we eat here on Earth? Joining us to talk about it is Evan Fraser, director of Aral Food Institute at the University of Guelph. Good morning to you. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Evan. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for the call. Okay, so this conversation stems from an article in theconversation.com. Let's talk about, well, food on Mars. Why are we even speculating about that? Is the ability there? (laughs) <laughs> well, the article was uh, based on a book uh, my, myself and a, a friend, Lenore Newman, and I wrote, and it was a COVID project. We both study food systems, and we, in COVID, started thinking, well, we can't travel anywhere. Where can we go in our imaginations? And so we started dreaming about what it would be like to feed a city on Mars. And a silly thought experiment actually led to a, a serious conversation about how you could create a system that would feed people, would be tasty, would be nourishing, and all that good stuff, but also require very little in the way of um, of inputs. You know, we went on Mars, uh, water scarce, uh, almost non-existent, um, uh, carbon dioxide scarce, sunlight scarce. So you have to be really, really hyper-efficient. So it was really all about developing a hyper-efficient system and then imagining how it would work on another planet, but then thinking about maybe that would help uh, food systems here on Earth. Mm-hmm. So what is the process then, Evan? I know we're not putting it in the ground and watering it and, you know, uh, what we would do here on Earth. What does that look like on Mars? Yeah, so I think I think on Mars, what you'd start with is probably some sort of microorganism, probably like an algae or a bacteria, maybe cyanobacteria, uh, which some people call blue-green algae, and that's uh, that's actually proven to be able to grow on Martian-like conditions. We've never grown it on Mars, but we've simulated Martian-like conditions on Earth and shown that you can grow cyanobacteria uh, in those conditions. And then from the cyanobacteria, you'd have uh, that give you some organic material that would give you um, a, a base on which you could then build hydroponic um, systems that would have the nutrients or the fertilizers coming from the cyanobacteria. And then you'd probably use something crazy called uh, advanced fermentation, and you would actually use other microorganisms to digest, just like uh, like fermenting in in a brewery or a winery digests uh, starches and creates um, alcohol, you'd actually use advanced fermentation to probably create some proteins. And out of that, you'd slowly build one system on top of another uh, to to result in a largely plant-based diet that might involve some fish and a lot of this crazy stuff you call cellular agriculture, which would be like like meat uh, developed in a laboratory. Uh, fascinating premise for sure so you know vertical farming hydroponics those are not new concepts but do we do enough of that do you think that that there's more you know ability to to grow and, and feed more people more countries in the future if we just use that a little more you know um, often 
Yeah, so so the, the, the amazing thing for us was that uh, when we started imagining these technologies or what it would take to do it on Mars, what Lenore and I concluded in our article and in our book was that the technologies aren't that far off. They're a little far off, but we're not sort of talking about creating a Star Trek replicator. I mean, these are technologies, like you just said, are already starting to get established here on Earth. And really the punchline of the book isn't about Mars. It's about if we see these technologies and we grow these technologies here on Earth, we can probably do a much better job of feeding people and cities on Earth, you know, in the next 10 years with a far smaller environmental footprint. So really, it's, it's a book about the sustainability of our food system today, disguised as a piece of almost speculative fiction. Matt Damon style, Martian style speculative fiction. Hey, on that point, we're going to get to potatoes in a minute and where that came from. But, <laughs> Good, I hope so. But I, want to, I want to talk briefly about AI and automation yeah. because the ag industry has been helped by technology for, for, for decades, well over 100 years now. We've started to implement tools to make it easier for us. How much will we see as far as you know, actual farmers versus automation on Mars? Well, I mean, the farming in Canada, especially the big grains and oil seeds farming in Canada, is is almost entirely done already today by technology. I mean, I've, I'm aware of, uh, like a friend of mine's a farmer in Saskatchewan. I think he's farming with about a team of six people, uh, 30,000 hectares. I mean, I mean, the robots are all already doing that job. And it's not suggesting that, 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 that there's not a lot of really important human labor that goes into that. But it's, it's not, say, my grandfather's style of farming anymore, um, at least in most parts of Canada. So I, I, think, I think to a large extent, as you said, technology has already to uh, replace a lot of what used to be human or, or animal labor in the farming system. And that's going to continue. We have to remember that we're, the farming sector is facing a labor crisis right now. I mean, farmers in Ontario, where I'm based, can't, can't find workers. So we need to find alternatives to human labor anyways, and automation really does provide, provide that. I think when we talk about something like a vertical farm, which is more of an urban-based technology, uh, you know, an average-sized vertical farm today, there's one being built just out in Calgary. I, I'm a, a couple of friends of mine are building a big vertical farm in Calgary called True Leaf. Um, it'll employ about 50 or 60 people. It'll have a growing area of about 100,000 square feet, and it'll produce, I don't know, many, many, many tons of lettuce, you know, right, right year-round, right, right on your doorstep. That's fascinating. We're jokingly referring to Matt Damon and potatoes, and obviously, that, you know, that comes from the movie The Martian. Is that concept even plausible? Well, yes and no. Yeah, I mean, they, they did a lot of research for that movie. The, the really big failure with that movie, in my opinion, we're getting into a movie critique here, but that's okay, <laughs> is, is uh, The Martian soil is called regolith. It's kind of a sandy structure with a little bit of water in it, no organic matter. It is highly toxic to humans. So we talk about the, you know, like this week, we're all supposed to not, not drink as much as we thought because of cancer risks. Martian regolith is really, really cancer inducing, sort of more like asbestos. You know, if, 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 we, if we tried to grow food in the Martian regolith or we were ever got that on our skin or in our lungs, we would, we would die, you know, from cancer very, very quickly. So you know, we wouldn't be doing things with Martian regolith. We would have to be probably b growing our lettuce under LED lights in tunnels, uh, probably drilled into cliff faces and, and using hydroponic solutions because that Martian sand is really bad for people. Okay. All right. Good. I'll keep that in mind next time I'm up, up there and around. Uh, I want something you touched on, and I'm quite ignorant when it comes to Mars and, and the study of, uh, you know, space and colonization of the different planets. 
you mentioned the scarcity of water. Uh, the water that we can get, I'm assuming it's from ice on Mars at some point or somewhere. Would we have to ship the majority of our water into uh, into space? No, actually, so that, I mean, yeah, most of us are ignorant of Mars. Two years ago, I was completely ignorant about Mars. I went down a big rabbit hole with my friend. Um, so there's two, two sources. It's ice. Um, there's a fair bit of ice. I mean, it would be hard to harvest, but you could harvest a fair bit of ice out of what essentially called permafrost, like what would be equivalent to in Canada or on Earth permafrost, where it's essentially ice crystals that are frozen in the in the regolith. Uh, they've also found at least one entire like crater filled with frozen water, like it could be a lake, uh, up sort of in the northern hemisphere of. of of um of mars so and we've got that information from sort of nasa and european space agency expo, you know rover explorations over the last 20 years so we are aware of in the soil or the regolith and then on a couple of craters you know enough enough water that you could harvest it presumably and and get things going and then if we start going real sci-fi i guess you could probably lasso a um Lasso a ice-filled uh, asteroid and, and crash it into <laughs> crash it into Mars, but you know, we're getting really sci-fi on that one. <laughs> it's fascinating. If anybody wants to read the article, read get more information on uh, what Evan has written. Uh, go to theconversation.com. Look for the article there. Thanks for your time, Evan. Great convo. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks for calling. Appreciate Bye now. it, Evan Fraser, director of Arel Food Institute at the University of Guelph.